we continue with our sermon series entitled, What Jesus Looks For in a Church. And this is a, a study of Christ's messages uh, to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This morning, we come to the fifth church, uh, the church at uh, Sardis, which I've called the Church of the Living Dead. And uh, you'll understand why I use that terminology when we read uh, Christ's message uh, to this church. So Revelation chapter 3, and his message is contained in verses 1 through 6 to this church. To the angel, or to the pastor of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me tell you just a little bit about the city of Sardis first. Uh, the city itself, in years past, had actually been one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It became very wealthy from extracting gold uh, from a nearby river. It was a major trade center with its primary industries being the production of wool, uh, garments, and jewelry. In terms of religion, uh, the city was known for combining wild sexual orgies with the worship of heathen gods. So morally, it was a very, very corrupt city. The city was also considered an impregnable military fortress. It was built on top of a mountain that was surrounded by very steep, uh, rocky uh, cliffs that were considered impossible to scale. And there was only one narrow approach to the city which was easily defensible. Uh, this resulted in the city's residents uh, becoming extremely arrogant and overconfident, uh, believing that they were absolutely secure, impervious to attack. Uh, their arrogance... Uh, led to complacency and lack of watchfulness uh, with the city being attacked and conquered twice. At the time the book of Revelation was written, uh, the city of Sardis was rapidly declining, rapidly deteriorating. Uh, it was a mere shell or shadow of its former self, its uh, uh, glory days long past. Now, sadly, what we're going to discover is that could also be a perfect description of the church in Sardis. 
a mere shell or shadow of its former self, its glory days long past. So let's begin by first looking at the rebuke that Christ pronounced on the church found there in verse 1. He says, unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The Polix star is the brightest star found in the northern constellation of Gemini, and astronomers tell us it's approximately 35 light years uh, from the earth. In other words, it takes 34 uh, years for the light uh, from this star uh, to reach the earth. Now, this presents a very interesting uh, possibility. Uh, the star could actually explode and plunge into darkness, and that could have happened 34 years ago, yet its light would still be pouring down to earth. You would find the star lighting the uh, night sky up as if nothing had happened. It would be a dead star shining solely by the light of its brilliant past. And the church at Sardis was like a dead star shining solely by the light of its brilliant past. If you looked at the church from a distance, you would think nothing had changed. Uh, you could peer into the windows of the church, their meeting places, and you would find people singing praises to God, praying to God. Uh, they would be listening, studying God's Word. You would be inclined to say, well, there's a church that's alive for Christ, but you would be wrong. Uh, although Sardis seemed healthy and alive on the outside, the church was dead on the inside. Uh, they may have had a good reputation with men, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who distinguishes reputation from reality, declared, I know your deeds. And yeah, you may have a name that you're alive, but you are, what, dead. I think of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, that says, The Lord knows those that are His. He knows His true children against those that are mere counterfeits. In other words... The folks at Sardis were what we would call nominal Christians, just Christians in name only. They were still teaching Christian truth. They were striving in many ways to maintain moral standards. They were practicing many of the external trappings of Christianity. Uh, Christ mentions no specific sin problem as He did with many of the other churches that we've already studied. There's no mention of false teaching in the church. But there's also no mention, I find this interesting, of persecution that we found in the other churches. Uh, and the reason is this church made no waves. Uh, so the surrounding culture just left them alone. Uh, it's obvious the community viewed them as disrespectable folks, decent folks. But they were neither dangerous or desirable. Uh, Bottom line, they were not fulfilling the purpose for which God had birthed this church many, many years earlier. In Revelation chapter 3, look at that verse, verse 2, the second part of that verse. Christ says, for I have not found your deeds completed. 
in the sight of God. That word completed is an interesting word. It's pleruo in the Greek text. And in this context, it literally means to fulfill or to accomplish. So Christ is saying to the church in Sardis, you're not fulfilling the purpose for which, again, you were birthed in earlier years. Uh, They were not fulfilling their purpose to be a living temple uh, filled with God's presence, uh, delighting to do God's will. They were not fulfilling their purpose to be the bride of Christ, to passionately worship Him as their first love. They were not fulfilling their purpose to be the body of Christ, to walk as Jesus walked, to seek and save those who are lost. Uh, This church was like the little girl who was required uh, to take her birth certificate to school, but she lost it on the way. The janitor saw the little girl crying and asked her, what's wrong? The tearful little girl said, I've lost my excuse for being born. Well, that was the church in Sardis. They had lost their excuse for being born. Over the years, Sardis became a church made up of people who outwardly professed Christ, but they did not possess Him. They were not true believers. Like the tragic history of the city, the church had become smug, uh, complacent, with a false sense of spiritual security. The church was a morgue with a steeple. The church was a spiritual graveyard, as I mentioned, the church of the living dead. Now that raises the question, how can a church which had such a brilliant past become nothing more than a lifeless monument to their past accomplishments? Now, the message that Christ gives to the church really doesn't tell us, but let me throw out several possibilities, things that we have seen in church history and in contemporary church history, five signs of a dying church, five signs of a dying church. And here's the first one, get this down in your notes, the church worships its past history. The church worships its past history. In other words, a church begins to die when that church develops a retirement mentality and all they do is enjoy talking about the good old days and they lose their vision for the future. Uh, We must always embrace Paul's words found in Philippians chapter uh, 3. He says, forgetting what lies behind. This is the call that's on the Christian life continually on any church. Forgetting what lies, forget the past. We're to reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on, he said, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So one of the signs of a dying church is it worships its past history. Look at the second sign. Maintaining traditions to the point where a church is inflexible and resistant to change. Now, we're not trying to say traditions are all bad. Many traditions are good, but traditions are bad when you take them to the extreme, to the point where you become inflexible, where you become resistant to change. You know, where the motto is, well, we've always done it this way. Because a living organism in any realm of life is always growing. 
It's always changing. It reproduces. So we must constantly ask ourselves, what saith my Lord to his servants? And then be willing to obey Christ no matter the changes that it would demand of us. Look at the third sign of a dying church. There's greater focus on achieving success than acquiring holiness. There's greater focus on achieving success than acquiring holiness. You can get so caught up in increasing nickels and noses, you can totally lose sight of holiness. Now listen very, very carefully. True success in the Christian life is becoming more like Jesus. That's true success, becoming more like Jesus, and I need to add to that, for the purpose of putting Jesus on display before the eyes of a watching world, before the eyes of a lost world, in order to draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But my point is this, anything in a church that calls itself success, but does not result or produce greater holiness, is a counterfeit. Is a counterfeit. If what we are doing here at Edgewood Baptist Church is not producing Christ-like character in our members to put Him on display in this world, then everything we're doing means absolutely nothing. We're just going through, again, those external trappings of Christianity and motions that mean absolutely nothing. Look at the fourth sign of a dying church. Personal gratification overshadows God's glory. Evidenced in the loss of evangelistic fervor. Personal gratification overshadows God's glory. Evidenced in the loss of evangelistic fervor. Bottom line, a church can become embalmed in its own selfishness and indifference. A church, listen now, a church is judged by Christ not on the basis of how many people come through its doors on a Sunday, but how many people go out those doors on a Sunday to be a witness for Christ the other six days of the week. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Can I honestly claim to follow Christ and have no interest in fishing for my men? No interest in the souls of men. A dying church is one who has lost its evangelistic fervor. And then look at the fifth sign of a dying church. Preaching easy believism or when Christianity is handed down instead of being a life-changing personal encounter with God. And I'll explain that in a moment. So the fifth sign of a dying church would be preaching easy believism or when Christianity is handed down Instead of being a life-changing personal encounter with God. Now, what do I mean by easy believism? And believe me, folks, now, easy believism has literally infected the church in the West. 
literally infected the church in America. And sadly, many of our church leaders are preaching easy believism. But easy believism, and uh, I may say more about this next week, but it's simply giving intellectual assent or affirmation to the truths about Christ without surrendering to Jesus as Lord. Uh, it's, it's this notion that a person can receive Jesus as their Savior while rejecting Him as their Lord. I mean, it's just as simple as the message of the angels at the birth of Christ. He said, this day in the city of David is born for you a Savior. And who is the Savior? Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Salvation is not in a prayer. It is not in a formula. Salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. And you cannot divide Him. You cannot come to Jesus and say, well, I like the Savior part, but I don't like the Lord part. But that's exactly what many, many people do. Uh, they, uh, uh, the whole focus, in other words, in easy believism, the whole focus is on what I get from God. While I neglect my responsibilities. I want all the blessings, I want all the benefits of Christianity. But that whole bit about taking up your cross and following Him, about repenting from sin, hungering for righteousness, you know, all of that is excluded. So what happens is easy believism results in many professions of faith. I mean, who doesn't want a ticket to heaven? Especially when it requires nothing. And again... We're not trying to say that salvation is not a free gift. I hope you understand that. You go to 2 Corinthians 5, it says, talks about Jesus as the one who knew no sin, but became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. When Jesus died on the cross, your sins were placed on Him. God the Father, in those moments on the cross, looked at His Son as if He were you and me. And he took the penalty. He took the punishment that I deserve, that you deserved. And he rose again, and he rose again to offer forgiveness, yes, as a free gift to all those who put their trust in him. And as we put our trust in him, yes, he imputes his righteousness to us. That salvation is based on the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. But you need to understand the reason he shed his blood, the reason he's willing to impute his righteousness is to restore us, reconcile us to God where there's no barriers from us coming to what? To embrace Jesus. Again, he that hath the what? Son has life. But he that has not the Son has not life. So yes, it's trusting in that, but as you trust in that, the door now is open to receive him, to embrace him. And you have to embrace Him for who He is, Savior and Lord. Uh, found this quote, great quote, by a Bible teacher by the name of Calvin Miller. Uh, and this is what he said, and this is what easy believism results in. He says, many Christians are really Christaholics and not disciples at all. 
Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves, and the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists looking for a shortcut to nirvana. Like drug addicts, they are trying to bomb out of this depressing world. But not only easy believers, and like I said, I'm, I think I'm going to say more about that next week. Uh, but I also mention when Christianity is handed down, instead of it being a life-changing encounter with God. And what I mean by that, this church had some history to it. You know, it would have been, it would have been uh, 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 birthed uh, probably in the uh, early 50 A.D., so we're talking about probably a 40 or more year history. So now you're having believers having children and their children having children. And it's very, very easy... For children just to what? Embrace the beliefs and the values of their parents, but never have a true encounter with God. A life-changing encounter with God. So we need them to be very, very careful when we deal with those next generations behind us to emphasize the miracle of the new birth. That true salvation is a new birth where someone comes into existence that did not exist before. And that is an encounter with God that is life-changing, life-transforming. So Jesus declared the church in Sardis to be dead. But don't you praise Him that He's a God of resurrection. And there's no church, no individual that He cannot bring to life, can revive back to life. Matter of fact, revival in terms of a corporate church could be defined this way, as the Holy Spirit suddenly breathing life into a body of believers that threatens to become a corpse and then raising up that body to extend His presence, express the character of Christ and execute His plans and will. And I I believe this is why Jesus identified himself to the church in Sardis in verse 1 as having, did you notice that phrase? It probably caught your attention, the seven spirits of God. He's referring to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. And this does not mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. There is just one. Uh, The phrase, the seven spirits of God, speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is probably a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which gives a magnificent sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. I'll read it for you. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. So that's the first. Spirit of the what? The Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it is the Holy Spirit that birthed a church, right? It's the Holy Spirit that brings the new birth to individuals as well. It's the Holy Spirit that brings growth to an individual or to a church. It's the Holy Spirit who 
uh, empowers the individual, empowers the church to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit alone that can resurrect a church that is dying. So look with me now at the remedy that Christ prescribed for this church. He didn't want to leave them in that dead state. He had a remedy. So look at verses, uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 2a, and then 3a. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Now, before we get into these five commands, notice they're like staccato commands, uh, all given by Christ, very sharp words, almost like, you know, you're taking a person that's, uh, you're trying to revive, and it's just almost like slapping them across the face. You know, wake up, wake up, wake, wake up. Come on. You know, uh, look at the first thing that he mentioned, five steps. He said, first is, he says, wake up. Uh, I think of Ephesians 5.14, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the first need of a church that is dying or dead is what? To wake up to its true condition. Stop being blind. Don't be deceived any longer. So Christ is saying, open your eyes, people. Get alert. Get with it. Acknowledge your pitiful condition and get desperate in crying out to God for spiritual life because He's the only one that can give it. And then notice the second thing he says. Once you recognize your condition, you get desperate for God, you realize He's your only hope for salvation, for renewal, for revival, if you've strayed from Him. Then he says, strengthen the things that remain. I find this extremely, extremely instructive for any church that's dying or struggling. The word strengthen is often used in the New Testament to refer to the nurture of believers. In other words, you know what he's saying here? He's saying, as you go forward to get this thing turned around and revived, don't focus on the majority who are spiritual zombies, but focus on that small minority in the church that are hungry for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 4 that we read, Jesus said, there were, yes, a few people in Sardis. Remember, he said, there are a few people here, not many, but there are a few that have not soiled their garments, that are walking with me, that are worthy. So the point is, don't try to appease the unsaved or the carnal majority in the church. Don't try to build your programs and, and ministries in that direction to appease that group, but invest your lives in the faithful. In other words, fan, here, here, here's a simple point. What he's saying is, fan the embers of the faithful few, and you'll start a fire that will spread to the dead wood. That's exactly what he's saying. And then look at the third step. He says, remember. Remember what you have received and heard. The word remember means to constantly call to mind. That's what the word means. Constantly call to mind. So what are they to constantly remember? We says you're to constantly remember what you have received and heard. Well, what have they received and heard? Obvious reference without any question, to the Word of God. 
That's what they had received. That's what they had heard. But of course, it's not just enough to what? Remember God's Word. Learn God's Word. You got to go to the fourth step. They had to what? Keep it. Obey it. Apply it. Appropriate it in their lives. Folks, let me tell you. Sitting under a good Bible teacher, being involved in a wonderful discipleship group, uh, sitting under good preaching on can be one of the most dangerous things in life. If you're not committed to taking the truth that you've heard and applying it. Because if you do not, it, it develops a web of deception about you. That you, that, that you think you are spiritual because you know truth. But from God's perspective, you don't know it till you obey it. That's the proof of the pudding. Yes, it's getting in the book. But it's not just getting more information about the book. It's letting the information in that book, the truth of the book, bring transformation to your life to bring, to bring change. Uh, let me just, two, two passages that come to my mind here. Uh, let me read them for you. Uh, the first one, uh, James uh, chapter 1. Uh, listen to these very, very uh, powerful words. James chapter 1. He says in verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers, who deceive themselves. Notice. He says, if all you're doing is hearing, if all you're doing is getting more information, all you're doing is deceiving yourself if you're not a doer of that word. And then he goes on further to explain himself. He says, because if anyone is a hearer of a God's word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, he comes to the Word of God, he, he's under good preaching or good teaching, he, you know, he, he sees himself you know, there as, as God sees, but he doesn't act on it. So he leaves and he quickly forgets everything. Means nothing in terms of impacting his life, changing his life. But then on the contrast is, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Again, another word for obedience, keeping it. Uh, he says, not having become a forgetful hearer. How do you not become a forgetful hearer? By being, he says, the very next phrase, an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. And then I think, this is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, because this is the verse that sent Andy Merritt just like a skywalker growing in the Lord after, after I was converted. I heard this verse taught on, and I'll never forget, I, I, even to this day, I can't forget, it excites me to this day. Very simple verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, 
which you heard from us. And that word received means you welcomed it, you invited it into your life. He says, you accepted it. That word accepted is the Greek word dekamai, which means to appropriate, to apply, to obey. He says, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When I heard this taught by Dave, a teacher by the name of David Johnson, he merely said, this is what it comes down to. He says, you hear God's word. You have the opportunity to receive it, to welcome it. But you've got to come at the Word of God with the right attitude. And that attitude is an attitude of surrender and humility. I'm not going to debate God's Word. I'm going to obey God's Word. That's why I'm listening. I mean, I'm listening to leave here and obey it. To put that truth into practice in my life. And then he made this statement. That verse ends by saying about the Word of God who effectually works in those who believe. In the Greek text, it's talking about the fact that the Word of God has the power to change me. I can't change myself. I mean, we're talking about internal change. Christianity is not about external, external trappings. It's about true change from the inside out in a man's character and his attitudes, his thought life, all of that. And he, and he said the Word of God has the power. It has life to change. But you have a responsibility in that process. You have a responsibility to welcome it, invite it in, with an attitude of humility and surrender that I'm inviting it in for only one reason, to obey it. I raised my hand. Dr. Johnson, are you telling me, I was a brand new believer, you telling me, it's just as simple as getting in the Word of God because I love it and I want to welcome it, invite it in to take up residence in my life. And, and, and I just have to come in an attitude of humility and surrender, not to debate it, but I'm coming with the one goal, not just to get information, but transformation, to be changed, to obey it, to appropriate it, to live it. You're telling me if I will do that, God will do the rest? And he said, yes. And I can tell you, I was saved in 1970. I would have heard that truth in, uh, right after my conversion. And I can tell you, what he told me was true. And it's true to this very day. And then look at the fifth step to revive a dying church. Repent! <laughs> Repent. In the Greek text, it's interesting, the literal thought, is to repent and to do it now. Don't wait. In other words, the Greek grammar is indicating that the Lord is calling for an immediate decision to turn around and come to Him in authentic repentance. To trust Him as Savior, yes, and surrender to Him as Lord. But if they refuse to repent... Look at the next point, the ruin that Christ predicts. And I thought it would be good just to see this emphasis of repentance in the other churches. Remember, all the other churches, he talks about their need to repent, except for Smyrna, because there was nothing that he uh, challenged them about. He just encouraged that wonderful church that was being persecuted, telling them to remain faithful unto death. 
but look at Ephesus. He says, no, notice the emphasis on repent and how serious Jesus is about this matter. He says, repent, or there's consequences. Or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Not that they're going to lose their salvation, but he says, if you don't repent, if you don't get back to me as your first love, the light of your testimony is just going to continue to dim till you have no testimony in this community. You having no impact on this community. Church at Pergamum, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, you repent. Yes. You know, we, we, sang, we sang earlier what? About running into the arms of Jesus. But folks, if you're going to run into the arms of Jesus, that means you've got to stop going the way you're going, do an about face, and run to him. And if you don't, he's saying, all you're doing is going down a path of self-destruction. And he even goes further than that. He says, I'll make war against them. I mean, I can either be your friend. I can be your enemy. The choice is yours. And then fire retired. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds. There's the offer of repentance. Offer of salvation. Restoration. Growth. And then here in Sardis, here's the warning. If, therefore, you will not wake up, if you won't wake up to your dead spiritual condition and repent, he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. So the choice is clear there in your notes. Revival or what? Ruin. That's it. That's, that's the choices. Repent or ruin. Repent or ruin. Revival or ruin. Now look at the remnant. Christ praises in verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love this quote by John Stott on this point. He says, listen now, this is great. This is a, a word of encouragement to the faithful. A dynamic minority of awakened and responsible Christians is able by prayer love and witness, both to preserve a dying church from extinction and to fan its flames into a fire. Amen? But you have to assume responsibility, even individually. I, I love Gypsy Smith. He was a great uh, evangelist. And uh, some of you have heard this before. But Gypsy Smith took a piece of chalk and he simply drew a circle. And then he stood in that circle, and he said, God, bring revival, and let it begin inside this circle. That's the attitude that each of us need to have, but especially the faithful minority and the impact they can have. So in conclusion, look at the reward Christ promises. In other words, if this church who had been dead, many who had outwardly professed Christ but did not possess Him, if they would truly repent and come to Him in true faith, in true surrender, to know a transforming personal encounter with God. Here's the promises. He who overcomes shall be clothed in right garments. There's everlasting righteousness. He says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. There's everlasting citizenship in heaven. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Everlasting affirmation. 
What wonderful promises. He extends to this dead church. If you would just wake up. I'm ready to receive you if you just repent. If you would just turn to me. I'll bring life. True life. True transformation. And I promise you everlasting righteousness. Everlasting citizenship in heaven. And everlasting affirmation. I'll close with this. I've used this illustration uh, in many years past. But it's a good one to close on here. It's a true story. It was a young pastor in Oklahoma. He took a church that had a number of years on it. Church was really in decline. It was dying. I'm not just talking about numerically, just, just spiritually. There, there, there was no vitality. There was no, there was no life, life there. But this young man went with great hopes to really make a difference, to see this church turned around and revive. And he was met with nothing but uh, heartache and opposition, which plunged him into deep discouragement and disappointment. He bought an ad in the local newspaper. And the ad was an obituary for the church. That's what it was. He wrote an obituary for the church. And then he announced on this particular Sunday, he was going to give the church his eulogy. He was going to have a funeral for the church. Well, folks, let me tell you what happened. People didn't even know how many years back they would have had to have gone, but the church was packed. They said it was so packed, people couldn't get inside. They were all around the outside looking through the windows. And to their dismay, when they walked in, there is a coffin draped with flowers. Young man gets up, begins his eulogy, and he says, now when I end my eulogy, we'll open the coffin where you can see the dead remains of this dead church. Well, to be very honest, most of the people didn't remember anything the guy said. They were just waiting for the eulogy to end. The eulogy ended. He took the spray of flowers off the coffin. He opened it up, and he said, you can begin. And they, just, they lined up, sort of like we do the Lord's Supper, and just one by one came by. And every one of them was struck to their heart in conviction. Because you know what the young man did? He put a mirror in the coffin. Let me end on a positive note. (laughs) I'll give you a great quote. I'll end with this. Richard Owen Roberts, great man of God who taught on revival. Man, how about this as a dream, a prayer? Imagine, and just think about this in the context of Edgewood Baptist Church, just right here. Just what's in the sanctuary today. Imagine, not one sleeping Christian left. Not one backslidden believer remaining. But all alike devout and intent on seeing the will of Jesus Christ accomplished. To this startling picture... Add that same power of the Holy Spirit that transformed bumbling Peter into a Pentecost preacher. Unleash all this transforming power against the forces of sin and evil in your community. That is what revival is. Amen? So, as we come to the time of invitation, I hope you're going to make this a very personal message. Because the question comes out of it. How does, 
this is the only issue. How does Jesus see you? Are you dead wood? You outwardly profess Him, but you don't really possess Him. You've never had a transforming personal encounter with Jesus Christ. If that's true, you need to come to true faith in Christ. Maybe you're a believer and you've just, you've just, you've just strayed. You, you, as we saw in Ephesus, you've lost your first love, Pergamon Thyatira, tire, you've begun to compromise the truth, compromise your walk with God. The message to you is what? Repent. And then if you are one of those faithful fukes, say, God, use me. Use me to impact and influence others. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. I'll just give you a few moments to reflect before God. I hope you won't run from Him, (laughs) but you'll run to Him right now. Doing an about face, running to Him. And say, Jesus, show me my true spiritual condition. Help me see myself the way you see me. And then even in my weakness and my failure, I'm going to repent and I'm going to trust you to do a miracle in my life. Because you do love me. You died and you rose again for me. That I should no longer live for myself, but for you, the one who died on my behalf and was risen again on my behalf. Father, I pray that you would show us mercy, that you would not allow me, not a single person in this sanctuary, um, to run away from the truth of this message. But I pray even as we leave here, that truth would pursue us, would apprehend us and capture us. Lord, open our eyes. That each of us would see ourselves as you see us in terms of our spiritual condition. Thank you that if we're your child, you love us. And that disposition can never change. But again, as I've so often said, although your love will never fail us, your love's not going to let us off. You're committed to accomplishing your purposes in us. So Lord, open our eyes to see as you see, to see our church as you see it. And that we would simply bow before you and surrender and say, What saith my Lord to his servant? So, Father, give us grace to repent. 
Thank you. There's no need for any person to go into ruin, to suffer the consequences of a compromised walk with you because you offer repentance, because you do love us. And so, God, God, give us the grace to turn and to follow you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.